WENJ, WENJ HD, Millville, Atlantic City. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Five o'clock hour of the Sports Bash. Josh Ennick filling in for Mike Gill along with Arnold Brody here on 97.3 ESPN NBA is officially live on your television, on your radio tonight. Of course, you can hear the Lakers versus Clippers game tonight here on 97.3 ESPN. We got to talk some NBA. We got to talk some Sixers, some Joel Embiid, and more. Right now with the co-host of the NBA pod. He's also the quality editor for Bleach Report and contributor for Forbes Sports. He is Brian Tepork, and he joins us now on the Boardwalk on the hotline on 97.3 ESPN. Brian, welcome to official NBA Restart Day. Thank you. That is music to my ears, man. I was just telling, I was saying off the air to you, and those who haven't listened to the NBA pod, you absolutely should, because you guys, you and Mort cover a lot of ground, but I don't know how many more lists uh, Mort could have dealt with at this point. So. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's he's ready for a break for sure. Uh, I don't know how many more drafts you guys could have redrafted too. Even though those pods were a lot <laughs> of fun to listen to, you guys argue about some of those guys. But uh, listen, the NBA is back tonight, and I think a lot of people are looking forward to it. So, Brian, I'm just going to give you an open open palette here. What's the one thing you're looking forward to most about the return of the NBA? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Everything would be the easy answer, but you know, from a Sixers perspective, I think they're really one of the most interesting teams to watch uh, heading into the restart. You know, they had such an up and down season. They were supposed to be one of the title favorites coming into the year, and then pretty significantly underachieved. Uh, now coming into this restart, we have the lineup switch. Al Horford's going to the bench. Shake Milton moves into the starting lineup. Ben Simmons comes off the ball more, is going to play at the four. So just seeing how all of that works. I mean, conceptually, before the season even went on hiatus in March, you know, we started to see hints of this with Horford came off the bench in that game against the Clippers right before the All-Star break, and that worked really well. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people covering the team were starting to kind of point out, hey, maybe this is something we should move toward, toward full-time. So... You know, and to some extent, this long layoff actually gave Brett Brown and the Sixers coaching staff a chance to really evaluate, like, will this thing work? Is this the best way to maximize our roster? So, you know, these eight seeding games is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. We got to see it in these three scrimmages. And, I mean, the early returns are positive, but, you know, it's <laughs> hard to read too much into a scrimmage. So I think you know, we'll start to get our real taste of this starting Saturday. Are you buying into the Ben Simmons jump shot? Two games in a row now, no jumper. And even though it's an exhibition game, seeing him do it the first game, it's exciting. But if he's not going to do it in the exhibition games after that, why would he start doing it in postseason play? Yeah, I mean, I'm not buying it as he's going to take like five threes a game. You know, anyone putting their expectations that high is bound to be disappointed. I I mean, based on the comments that Brett has been continually making since they've arrived in Orlando, it does seem like there's kind of a mental shift with Ben now that he's playing off the ball more. 
he realizes, like, I have to stand out there and space the floor, and I have to be willing to take those shots for opponents to respect me. I mean, otherwise, they're just going to sag off of him and double-team Joe. So I, I do think the fact he had a quick trigger against Memphis, both of those two threes, he, I mean, he let it fly without hesitation. Um, and, no, I don't think he's going to knock down 40% of them. It's going to be a low-percentage shot. It's, you know, not necessarily going to be the way for the Sixers to maximize their expected points per possession on every play. But the threat of that is going to help their spacing. Uh, just having, you know, if, if an opponent knows Ben is willing to take that shot, they can't sag off as much. That's going to open up driving lanes for his teammates. That's going to prevent Joe getting double teams as often. So even if it's not the best way to maximize him, you know, just because he's not going to be a strong shooter right away, it really might help the team maximize its potential. Now, I have a bet going right now over under four and a half threes in the eight regular season uh, games for Ben Simmons, and it's just attempts. He doesn't even have to make them. So it's over under oh. four and a half three attempts. I went under. Do you think I'm going to lose? I, I think you might. <laughs> Come on. I, I hope you didn't bet too much. Now, just a six pack of IPAs. Okay, yeah, you're fine then. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I, I mean, who who knows? To be fair, but I, I do think the fact we saw him take those so quickly and so early, and I mean, here's the beautiful thing about the seeding games for the Sixers: they don't really matter. I mean, there's no home court advantage down in Orlando, so the Sixers' ridiculous home road splits don't come into play here. I mean, they can move up to the five and get Miami in the first round, most likely, or stay at six and get Boston, probably. I don't get the impression that they care all that much who they end up drawing. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be in Ben's head that, like, oh, my gosh, I need to, you know, really (laughs) make sure I make zero mistakes. Like, I think this is going to be a time for experimentation because all these big lineup changes for the Sixers and this, you know, this – adaptation to this new role. So I think he actually might be more willing to, you know, kind of push his own limits than he has been for most of his time in Philly so far. So which are you more concerned with then, Brian? Is it Ben Simmons shooting jump shots or Joel Embiid's mindset down there? Mm. Um, I mean, Joe... (laughs) Honestly, it's Joe's health in general. You know, he he sat out those two scrimmages with the calf soreness. He did participate in practice today, and they're going to update his status tomorrow ahead of Saturday's game. But as of now, it doesn't sound like there's any real reason to expect this is like a big, serious issue. But, I mean, they're going to go as far as Joel Embiid takes them, ultimately. Um, So number one concern is his health. I, I think mentally... I'm not too concerned about that. So, you know, I would say Ben Simmons jump shots by default just because that's going to be an issue for his, I mean, frankly, his entire NBA career probably. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not too worried, you know, about <laughs> like Joe not having the motivation because the home crowd's not going to be there. Maybe the 300 virtual fans, the Philly, you know, the virtual Philly fans can motivate him. But, I mean, I think all of these guys know they're, they're here for a reason. You know, they, they didn't volunteer to go leave their house for up to three months, be quarantined down in Orlando, 
and they're going to like lollygag when they're down there. I, I think they come in, and it's not just them, it's every team. They're coming in with a purpose. They're coming in, they know it's, it's time to go. It's not like a January game against the New York Knicks. We have eight seeding games, and the playoffs begin. Do you, you have that time to ramp up and get yourself back into game shape? But uh, mentally, I think they're locked in already, and we, we saw it in the scrimmages. I mean, their defense with the starters on the floor, their main rotation players on the floor, they were flying around. They looked good. So I think that that's an encouraging sign for sure. I'm just concerned about, you know, Joel Embiid, you know, I was saying, you know, I don't really want to go to the bubble, but I feel almost obligated to go. I owe it to my team. I owe it to the city. The fact that he didn't really seem like he pressed to get out there to play the other scrimmage games. The fact that in some ways he kind of lollygagged through part of this season. I'm just a little concerned about, you know, where his head is at in terms of being a basketball player because we know that when he's locked in, he's one of the best players in the league, but when he's not locked in, it's like, oh, great, here we go again. Yeah, yeah no, he, he definitely, this was an up-and-down season for him. I think the spacing issues that stemmed from the awkward fit between him, Ben, and Al Horford, uh, it seemed to really wear at him at times, and he, he clearly was just not having as much fun out there as he usually does. And, and it, you know, you can, much like you can tell if it's going to be a good or a Ben, or a good or a bad Ben game, just kind of like in those first few possessions, is he attacking the basket? Is he pushing the tempo? You know, with Joe, you can just read his body language, and a lot of times this year it was not great. So, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a concern. Um, but again, I, I mean, I do think that even after the all-star break or right when the season was uh, shutting down, you know, he, he dominated. I mean, they were going through him at the end of that, the all-star game. And it seemed like that was kind of that motivation to remind him like, Oh, I, you know, these are the best players, best basketball players in the world. And they are choosing to go through me. Like, this is how dominant I can be. Um, And down in Orlando, he said similar things. You know, he said like, I want the offense to go through me. This is my team. Like I, I need to dominate. This is how we win. Um, you know, the fact he came to Orlando in what seems to be pretty good shape. I mean, Brett Brown was very complimentary of the work he put in during the layoff, which is good to see. I mean, that was one of the big concerns for me uh, before all the teams arrived. It was just like, what shape are these guys going to be in? But so far, so good on that end. So, I mean, fingers crossed he'll stay healthy through these eight seeding games. It would be a real bummer for, I mean, any player to suffer an injury. We saw, you know, Eric Gordon of the Rockets twist his ankle the other night, and he's probably going to be out for one to two weeks. So I think, you know, the top priority for these seeding games is to make sure everyone stays healthy. They're ready to go for August 17th when the playoffs start. And then, you know, figure out how this how this new starting lineup works and also – how the rotation works in general, like which guys are coming off the bench, which guys are steady rotation players, which guys are more matchup dependent. Do you think that Brett Brown is coaching for his job this playoff run? I mean, it's hard to say. I think had the season not, you know, had the last four months not happened, had this just been a normal season, no four-month pause, no coronavirus, no weird uh, economic fallout that's going to hit the NBA and most owners, yeah, he probably was. I mean, you know, even going back to last year, there was a lot of speculation about his job security, and I think he 
acquitted himself well, particularly in the playoffs. In that Raptors series, he was quick to make some adjustments, even in the Brooklyn series, too. Um, so now that you know, we don't know what the financial fallout is going to be from all of this, we don't know what next season is going to look like, but you know, there's already some reports that the NBA is uh, looking at you know regional bubbles or another bubble situation. So that's going to have some major economic fallout. I think a lot of teams might be hesitant to fire their coaches, honestly, just because they're going to be bringing in a lot less money. I mean, regardless of what, how they play, if it's in their own stadiums or in another bubble, more likely than not, fans aren't going to be there for most, if not all, of the next season. So, you know, that's we're talking like 40% of the league's revenue is out the door before we even get started. So I don't know that, you know, the Sixers owners are going to be very psyched to be paying two coaches at the same time. Um, so I think that actually might help him. But at the same time, you know, these they have a lot of big decisions coming up. Josh Richardson, the free agent, after next season, Candace Al Horford, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, all of whom are on these massive contracts. Can this team win a championship? If not, they're probably not going to want to pay luxury tax, you know, especially if the cap falls or doesn't go up as much as they want. So I think that's going to be the first change they make. Rather than blow up the roster itself, it's probably, okay, the coach is a scapegoat. You know, who can we bring in? And that's that's the other question is, you know, is there a guy out there who you're convinced can come in and make this team win right away? Brian Toporek joining us here on the Boardwalk on the Hotline on 97.3 ESPN. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at btoporek. Also, check out the NBA pod, the podcast with him and Morton Jensen. Always great content on the podcast. Brian, I also got to ask you about Tobias Harris. He's looked really good in these scrimmages. He got rid of the headband. He looks extra serious, Tobias. He's got this new leadership role. He's the co-star of the Matisse Thibel vlogs on YouTube. So, I think Tobias, you know, I don't think it's an accident that he's been the team's leading scorer in all these scrimmages. So, you know, what is your impressions of him right now? Yeah, I mean, nothing but positive things to say about Tobias Harris, both on and off the court. Um, It does seem like he's taken more of a leadership mantle in these last few months, um, which is great to see. You know, I mean, he's the team's highest paid player right now, I believe. Uh, So, with that comes the added responsibility, and he might have not wanted to step on Joe and Ben's toes. You know, having just come here last year, you probably you come in and you you know you feel like it's their team, they're the all stars. You just want to fit in. But I think the fact that he is he's showing a little bit more aggression on the court, which is great to see. After that first scrimmage, Brett was particularly complimentary of his offensive rebounding. I mean, look, he's he's got a big part of this team. If the Sixers are going to win a championship this year, it can't just be Joe and Ben. They need guys like Tobias, Shake Milton, Al Horford, Josh Richardson. They need big contributions for all of them. And, you know, I don't expect Tobias Harris to score 30 points a game or whatever, but, you know, if he can average around 20, shoot in the mid-40s, hit a couple threes per night, that's that's what they need out of him. So it's great to see him you know, attack these scrimmages like their regular season games or even like their playoff games. Like, the intensity has been there for him. Um, I mean, Matisse in particular has been extremely complimentary. You know, earlier today he spoke with reporters and 
they asked about uh, Tobias in particular. I mean, he's had nothing but good things to say about you know how how Tobias has kind of gathered the team together uh, and you know taken on that role of developing chemistry. How many minutes can you anticipate Al Horford getting? Because Brett Brown said that there was not a lot of time of Embiid and Horford during practices, and then he also mentioned a while back that they're shooting for about 38 minutes of Joel Embiid, so that leaves, what, 10 to 13 minutes for Al Horford? And I just feel like that's way too small for the amount of money he's getting paid. Yeah, I I think the 38 minutes is ambitious uh, for Embiid, especially with this cap injury now. We'll see what happens. I, I'm guessing it's probably closer to low 30s, maybe 35 tops, unless it's you know game five of an elimination game, that type of thing. I, I just struggle to believe that they're going to you know increase his workload that substantially in such a short run-up, but we'll see there. Um, I think that Clippers game, Brett's pointed to it a number of times uh, because that was the one game that Embiid... Uh, it was the first time that Horford came off the bench, and he and Embiid really did stagger their minutes pretty much exclusively until the fourth quarter. That's when you started to see them play together a little more. I mean, I don't think that Al Horford and Joel Embiid are never going to see the court together. That, because, as you said, you know, he is too important of a piece to only play 10 to 13 minutes tonight. Now, is he going to play 35 like he was at the start of the season? No, I, I don't think so. I think it will probably be closer to 25 or 30. I do think, you know, splitting those guys up, putting Al off the bench, you're ensuring that there should not be a single minute where one of Embiid or Horford is not on the floor at all times. And that's ultimately the value. that you know, For one reason, they find Al Horford, as much as they want to talk about how they thought he would fit as power forward or whatever, last year in the playoffs when Joel Embiid sat, they got blown off the floor. Didn't matter which guy they were starting at center, whether it was Boban or Greg Monroe or Jonah Bolden, they got annihilated. So having Al Horford there is going to be great. That's, I mean, that's going to be his primary role. But, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing he probably ends up playing 10 to 15 minutes a night with Joel as well, and it, it might come down to matchups. I mean, you know, if you're going against a Boston team that doesn't have a ton of really strong big men, you're probably not going to play them as much together because you're going to need to downsize and match up well against Boston's wings. If you're going against an Indiana team, we'll see on Saturday. Uh, we'll see with Sabonis. He has a plantar fasciitis, and I'm not 100% sure if he's going to be active for that matchup. But if, you know, if you're going against a too-big lineup, you're probably going to need more of the Horford and Mead combo. So, yeah, I think you know 25-ish minutes, maybe – Upward of 30 is probably the safe bet for Horford, but I, I do think, you know, 35 is asking a lot out of him. And it's, it could be good for him, too. I mean, he's had knee issues for the past few years, so hopefully this keeps him fresh and, you know, looking, looking a little more spry than he did throughout much of the regular season. Absolutely. Brian, let's flip it to the rest of the NBA. Let's start in the Eastern Conference. I know the Bucks are the you know the quote unquote favorite in the East, but you know I'm looking at the rest of the teams and I'm looking at the style of this bubble environment. You know the the experience of some teams may come into play, and I think most people would agree that the most experienced team is in the Bucks. It's actually the Raptors. So how dangerous could the Raptors be in these playoffs? Yeah, I, I think 
they can absolutely be a real threat that, to defend the whole their whole championship. I mean, Kawhi's gone, Danny Green's gone, and they have the same record that they did last year through 64 games, which is unreal. I mean, it's a testament to Nick Nurse, who I think deserves the Coach of the Year this year. It's a testament to their team president, Nasai Ujiri, who's done an incredible job finding some diamonds in the rough with undrafted free agents like Fred Van Vliet, but then also guys like Terrence Davis, Matt Thomas, Chris Boucher, like these are guys most people have never heard of. And they're playing, you know, an important role off the bench for the second best team in the East right now. So, I mean, to your point, yeah, I mean, the Bucks enter this thing not only as favorites in the East, but probably favorites to win the whole thing. But I do think there is at least a possibility that there's going to be more variance than we're expecting. I think, you know, I'm watching all these people tweet out their predictions for what's going to happen. I'm seeing a lot of Bucks, a lot of Clippers, a lot of Lakers as NBA champions. And I get it because that's where we were when the season went on hiatus in mid-March. But, you know, it wouldn't shock me if a team like the Raptors or the Celtics ended up winning this thing, even the Heat, if their shooters get hot. I mean, we saw Duncan Robinson just go absolutely nuclear in that first scrimmage and, You know, a couple guys have said, like, the depth perception here in this environment is just totally different, and shooters can get a lot more hot than they can in a normal game. So Bucks deserve to go in as favorites, but, you know, really any of the top four teams and Philly, I think, all have a legit shot to come out of the East. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Celtics and the Heat because I was going to go down that road, and we might as well tie the Sixers in there as well. Who do you think the better matchup is for the Sixers in the first round, Boston or Miami? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I've been wrestling with that question for a while now. I mean, I think the Sixers have a better shot, slightly better shot against the Heat than they would against the Celtics. Um, I know that results this year would beg to differ, because uh, they they played the Celtics well, and other than that first game against the Heat, they have not played the Heat very well. Uh, the Heat do have they love to use that two three zone that can gum up the Sixers at times. It was a, their big bugaboo early in the year, but you know Brett has since said that they really worked on that in practice and they ended up you know figuring out ways to get around it. So I'm not too concerned about that. It it is more you know they have between guys like Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, even Goran Dragic, they have guys that can just get nuclearly hot and, you know, drill five threes, swing a game. Uh, Those types of players always worry me in the playoffs especially because that's all it takes. You swing one game and that that could be the difference in the series. But that said, I mean, Boston, with all of those wings, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, you know, Gordon Hayward, Marcus Smart, that's just a lot of length and versatility. Defense is really strong as well, especially for Tatum and Brown and Smart. Uh, the Sixers, you know, they brought in some good wing depth this year, especially at the deadline. They get Glenn Robinson. You know, Ben Simmons played all defensive caliber defense this year, so you can pin him probably on Tatum, but there are only so many guys you can throw at all the Boston players, so you would need a a big Joel Embiid series to to move past that. But then, you know, looking ahead, if, if you're the Sixers, do you want to get that six seed, get Boston in the first round, but at least you avoid Milwaukee until the conference finals? Or do you want to move up to the five, get Miami, which I 
again, I think is a slightly easier series, but then, you know, you're looking at Milwaukee most likely. <laughs> I mean, no, you're definitely looking at Milwaukee in the second round. He's Brian DeBoer, co-host of the NBA podcast. Check out their latest editions of the podcast where they're ranking the top 20 players in the NBA bubble. Also, you guys go through all NBA teams. You power rank all the NBA teams in the Orlando bubble. So you got everything NBA covered there on the NBA podcast. Brian Taporic, follow him on Twitter at BTaporic on Twitter. Brian, always appreciate the time and the great insights. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Josh. Anytime. Happy, happy that the NBA is back. Absolutely. I think we all are. And, of course, we'll be hearing from Brian throughout the weeks as the NBA is back on her. So we got to get all the NBA guys you know, back in the cycle here. Absolutely. I can't wait. I can't wait for tonight. I'm bummed about the Phillies. That hurt me early on. But now as time passes, I'm still hurt. But basketball, oh, no doubt about it. But basketball will be on my television tonight, and it will actually matter. It will. And by the way, it's LeBron and Kawhi tonight. It's not just anybody. Right. Oh, it's a big matchup. I will have secondary TV, though, that should, in theory, have a baseball game on there. Maybe Philadelphia Phillies, but it's not happening. Well, I'm not belittling the Pelicans-Jazz matchup before that, but LeBron oh, is big time. Oh, 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 we can totally look at that and laugh at it. Sports Bash being brought to you by SHM Financial. Are you... Josh Eddick filling in for Mike Gill here on the Sports Bash, along with Hunter Brody here on 97.3 ESPN. Before we get to the uh, latest NBA news that just popped off, I want to update that poll question. So, at Broads81... At 973-ESPN. It's a very simple question. Who's better? Christian Yelich or Bryce Harper? 53% currently say Yelich. So it's a close vote. It is, but I think it's very, very biased because of Bryce Harper playing here in Philly. I mean, you can read the comments. Yelich, come on. How is Bryce Harper at the time? I guess he was winning. How is Bryce Harper even winning this? I love Bryce, but he's not Christian Yelich. I'm bi- this guy literally says, I'm biased, so I said Harper. But obviously, it's Yelich. Well, someone else tweeted and said, career is closer than people will honestly say. Last year, obviously, it was Yelich, but the Phillies' three games, Harper hasn't been terrible. He's barely gotten any pitches, while Yelich has struggled mightily. Well, if he's basing it off of three games right no, now. Nobody's saying their careers are closer than people are willing to give him credit for. I mean, I'm not saying Bryce Harper is bad by any means, but right now, I don't think that he is where Christian Yelich is. And I'm not... Christian Yelich's tough start right now, I don't think, is the big picture of Christian Yelich. Keep the votes coming at Broads81 at 973 ESPN. It struck a nerve with some people, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was getting blown up. Who, what are you doing with this poll? Who did you pick? Started getting some texts. <laughs> Listen, I'm still going Harper over Yelich. I can't do that. And Offensively, I, he's just too he's better. He's just too much. He's too he's and I I think defense is important, but in the sport of baseball, you don't need to be that great at defense. If your numbers are Yelich's, you're okay. Half not half the reason, but a huge part of Vlad Guerrero getting to the Hall of Fame was he was more than just a great hitter. He had a howitzer for an arm. He had one of the greatest throwing arms of all time. Yeah, but that's not... You're talking about someone who has one of the greatest throwing arms of all time. That's not Bryce Harper. Harper's got a way better arm than Yelich does. No, I understand that. But when you're talking about the greatest arm of all time and then Bryce Harper, it's not like those compare to each other. I'm just saying I would take Harper, the all-around player, over Yelich, the all-around player. 
That's just me. That's where I stand. Yeah, I have to disagree with you a million percent. Not even just a hundred percent. A million percent. Now you're just being ridiculous. No, I'm dead ass. <laughs> well, you're what? <laughs> well, I don't even know what that means. What do you mean you don't know what that means? What's the NBA news? <laughs> uh, so the NBA and the NBA PA have come to another set of agreements long term. And I wanted to get into this a little bit with you because... You know, we've been talking about how these sports, the players, are on board with a lot of the changes the leagues are doing. Well, the NBA and the NBA have agreed on a raise of the insurance policy. It's going to be an increase of $2.5 million that will benefit career-ending career ending injuries. This includes on-and-off-the-court injuries and complications from COVID-19. The previous payout for this... Would have been three hundred and twelve thousand. Now you can get up to two point five million. So the NBA is going out of the way to cover the players in these special circumstances, and the Player Association and the NBA have both agreed to a reduction in player salaries of twenty five percent for next year. So it's not just for the bubble now. It looks like it's through next year at least. So now the players are saying, "You gave us the insurance coverage." We'll give you the money. Well, that's just the NBA being proactive. They do a great job at this. Uh, this is why the NBA is one of the strongest leagues going at this point is because they're on top of it. They continue to work together. Baseball, they hate each other. This league, they sit down and they actually have conversations. Well, they're partners. That's how they view it. You know, They understand that if you're successful, I'm successful. And the league is saying, listen, we also reserve the right to adjust this percentage and based on games resumed or canceled. And remember, part of that, as Brian Teporek said, there's discussion of maybe a bubble next year, at least to start the year, until they fully are sure that fans get back in the state. And so, you know, maybe you start the NBA season, let's say, I'm just throwing out an example, January 2nd, let's say, let everybody stay home with their families for the holiday, training camps January 2nd, have a bubble for a couple months, take a little time off, and then get back into your home markets with fans. See, I don't know how I feel about the little time off thing. We talked about this a little bit yesterday off the air. What would be the point of the little time off? Well, it allows you to go home, see your family, and then go back to your regular arenas, your regular practice facility. Now, if you are not allowed to go, say fans are not in play, would you still give them off and then bring them back into the bubble? Because yes. I think that's where it's sketchy, bringing them back into the bubble. Well, that's after... where the testing comes in. Sure, but I and think, I think the NBA has exhibited that the, they, they know how to do this. Yeah, but I feel like you're opening a door that doesn't need to be opened. Right, but my idea is, the reason why I'm saying it this way is because I think by the time January comes around, the world's going to be a lot different. I hope so. But the NBA may say, let's be safe, right? Let's... You know, let's go the extra step, right? Let's go the extra step in making sure that, listen, we asked you players to take less money. We asked you players to go to this bubble. We're not even going to start the season until the first week of January, and then we're going to bubble you so we can get our facilities and our arenas and everything back up and running with this new schedule. It's kind of like, you know, I give a little, you give a little, and that way if they bubble it for the first X number of games, it puts them in a position so when they return to full action in their own arenas. I don't even know if we're going to get full action in their own arenas next season. If it starts in January. Do you? Do you? Maybe not. But I'm just saying that this is why the conversation is being had. Because 
the if you do these little hub cities, for example, instead of a full bubble like this, you know, these regional hubs where it's like everybody in this area goes to this city and that's your hub city. And you know, everybody in this area, you know, like maybe like, you know, the Lakers, the Clippers, the Warriors, the Kings, the Suns, they all go to Phoenix, right? And then like the Sixers and the Celtics and uh, the Knicks, the Nets, the Raptors, they all go to Atlantic City or something like that, right? Everybody gets a hub city, and so it's not everybody in one location, and that we can kind of control some of those dynamics. Everybody's not too far away from their families. Maybe they can negotiate some way to bring their families into these hub bubbles or whatever it may be. And that way, at least you get the season started while you figure out how you're going to have fans in the stands, whether it's full capacity or 25% or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's just hard for me to picture that far away right now only because, and I get why the NBA's doing it. I'm not saying it's a bad job by them for doing something like this, but it's so hard for me to process all of that information right now with next year's plans when we can't even figure out all these sports right now. But I get why they did it. I think it makes a lot of sense, and who knows where the world is going to be when that time comes. Only, only time will tell us, really, where it's going to be. Now, we have Mike Gill chiming in on our poll question. Okay. He said it should be Yelich or Mike Trout. That should be the poll. And I said, thank you very much. Time to join me in yelling at Josh Hennig. <laughs> now, I don't see this comment on Twitter right now, so this must be a a sub-comment somewhere. I think he, I think he quote-tweeted the poll itself. Okay, so let me click on that. Yeah. Okay, now I see it. This isn't even really close. The better question is Yelich or Trout. I can't go Yelich or Trout. It should be Trout or Betts. It should be Trout or Trout. I don't think that there's even a comparison. To me, the only guy who's in the conversation with Trout is Betts. I don't even think he's in the conversation. I really don't. I think Mike Trout, and that's not a knock on Betts by any means. We all know how good he is. I just think Mike Trout is literally, historically, like one of the greatest baseball players ever. It's not even close to anybody else in this era. No, I agree. I'm just saying the number two is in Yelich, so it's Betts to me. Mookie Betts is the number two. Well, Christian Yelich had a far better year than Mookie Betts did last year. That's one year. I know. I'm just letting you know, though. If you're, I mean, then you look at the rest of the stats, and Christian Yelich is just as close as Mookie Betts. I mean, it's not that much of a difference. I will take Betts for all the intangibles the career, not just one year. I think the part of the problem with this conversation is that Yelich was a one, not a one-year wonder, but I'd he, say had, two, he had two very strong had, seasons back-to-back. He, back. he had a three-year run that culminated in last year. Well, it's not like it he's was a extreme, build up. It's not like he's extremely, you know, old or anything by no, any no. means. No, no, what I'm saying is that early in his career, when you go back and look at it, it's not like he was like the guy he was last year his whole career. But he had this he had this build where he went he got better and better when he got to Mil- when he got to Milwaukee is where things turned around. In Miami he was a he was a good but not great player, but then he got to Milwaukee when he turned twenty six years old, and then all of a sudden it's hundred RBIs, ninety seven RBIs the last year in Miami, you know, he started hitting better for average. Well when he was with Miami, he was still hitting three hundred. Yeah, but he wasn't hitting for the power and the RBI and everything. That's fine, but when you have a different type of lineup, on Miami stunk, right? No, so, but what he didn't I'm saying have the is same... that you look at the numbers, you can see there was a build going on there. He was he was ascending, right? So, Mookie Betts and Trout, they were like almost pretty much great day one, whereas Yelich has kind of ascended. 
to this level. And it's not diminishing Yelich. If you want to tell me Yelich is one is the third or fourth best player in the league, I'm not going to argue that. You know, I just think that Yelich, we're holding a lot of the last two years, whereas for some of these other guys, it's a it's a multitude of years. Like Harper's got a whole resume. Betts has got a larger resume to me. They do have larger resumes when it comes to Harper's, but I, I don't know. I don't think that Harper's resume is still better than what Christian Yelich has put together so far throughout his year, even throughout his career. Even though that you are right, it has been more of some stepping stones. And when you play in Miami, though, a big part of success in baseball, whether people want to admit it or not, is that protection, right? I mean, when you have guys around you, it totally helps out the way that you hit. When you're in Miami and you have nobody, it's tough to be well, that star. Stanton. But, sure, but still, I mean, when you look at that lineup, it doesn't even compare to what he had in Milwaukee and what Mookie Betts had in Boston, and now that you're seeing in L.A. with the Dodgers and all of these players. The only outlier is Mike Trout. When you look at all of these players, like Stanton now with with Aaron Judge, like all these great players that put up these ridiculous numbers, they have protection throughout their lineup with them. Except for the outliers. Now, just to counter your argument, because I think you're overlooking who was with Yelich in Miami. In 2016... They were they stunk. Your outfield was Stanton, Yelich, Ozuna. And they stunk. So your you're catcher giving me... was Real Muto. But they, the team was flat out awful. So you're, in theory, like naming these players... No, their pitchers were awful. They had all these great hitters. They, they were a bad team. They, they were, were a, a really bad, bad team. staff. They were a bad team. They were a bad pitching team. We're also talking, like, what, seven years ago? Like, these players seven years ago. Okay, four years ago. Seven years ago. Well, I mean, he was in Miami in 2013. So, I'm just saying, that's when he started playing in Miami was seven years ago. Yeah, but without the first, I'm not going to hold the first two years against him because he didn't even start all the time. Okay. Well, I didn't hold nothing against him when he almost hits 300. That's why I'm going to 2016, which was the first year he put up, you know, in my eyes, Real serious numbers. And that year, it was him, Ozuna, and Stanton in the outfield. That's a pretty darn good outfield. That's a bunch of all-stars. Well, it related to nothing. Well, you also had Romuto, a catcher. I mean, I I don't think that you can argue that the Miami Marlins had some lethal offense throughout those years because it clearly did not did not mean anything when it comes to them. Right, but you were saying that he didn't have anybody to hit around him in Miami. Well, he obviously did. It's just he had the worst pitching staff on planet Earth. I'm just going to have to disagree with you there. I mean, your pitching staff is Tom Kohler and Adam Conley. I'm not saying that they had great pitching, but back then, that lineup was not some lethal, insane lineup that people were so afraid to pitch against. That that lineup did not scream... Boston Red Sox, L.A. Dot, and like the protection that these guys are talking about now. Even Yelich when he was with Milwaukee, way better lineup. And you can see that with his numbers. But like that's um, my point is, it's very important to have that. And I don't think he had that so much in Miami with these players, even though their names do scream that they are good hitters. When we were talking about that Miami Marlins team, no one was afraid of them like you talk about these players now and where they are now with their careers. Unless you're the Phillies. Well, the Phillies, you can put together the greatest lineup on paper and it never works out. <laughs> Sadly. He's on a bird. Five questions. Now, I did a little research during the break on that Miami Marlins team, 2016. Sure. They were 27th in the league with four runs per game with that offense that you laid out. Sadly, 30th in the league was the Philadelphia Phillies. 
But that's why I say, like, you're right in terms of, hey, look, those guys are not bad players, but it wasn't like that lineup was crazy and so lethal that they were scoring all these runs. Can you tell what they were before the next year? Do you have uh, that in front of you? Could you click that? Yeah, yeah the year before no, they... Next year, 2017. 2017. I can hit that. That's more important than asking you questions. Well, I'm curious because it was almost the exact same lineup the next year. 4.8. So almost a run per game. More, almost. Like so 0. 0.8 points So they game. ranked higher, I assume. They right? did rank higher. Because that's almost the same exact lineup. It was still Ozuna, Yelich, Stanton, Real Muto, D. Gordon. Yeah, and then the year after that, they were last in the league. Well, that they trade away everybody at that point. Right, they did. But I meant the 2017 team. Right, and then the 2015 team, which they were all still there, right? They were 29th in the league. So they had one good year with those guys of... And they it, traded them all. Right. Well, that was the year they still had them, though. But and anyway. they traded them all the, the year after 2017. Yes, and that's when they fell back apart. But so, but when they were all there, they only had one decent year, if you will. That pitching staff is still embarrassing. I'm sure. Seeing, I'm looking at their pitching staff in 2017. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I, mean, I don't even want to name these names. Sure. All right, let's get into some questions here. Do Whoa, you like Ricky Fowler with the bright yellow Pittsburgh Pirates hat? That's too bright for me. Whoa! It's too bright for me. It's blinding bright. Now, do you like the Flyers jerseys? Are you a fan of the Flyers jerseys? I'm a fan of the blacks. Oh, you like the blacks? Yes. Back with, like, Keith Primo, that type of that yep. black jersey? Yep. What about the ones now? I don't mind them black ones now. I think they're okay. cool. Okay. I, I can, I'll rock with it. If you were to pick a jersey for the Eagles to wear Sunday to play, what jersey is your first choice? Black. All black? Yep. Like what color pants? Black? Black. Yeah, see, I like the funeral. I like the blackout. Yes, me too. I like the blackout when the players are running on the field and the whole crowd is blacked out too and the place goes nuts. Favorite Phillies jersey? I like the white pinstripe and I like the cream. I typically go white pinstripe, but I also... Clean look. I, I do like the spring training red on the white pin. Oh, I don't mind the red jersey. I don't mind the red one. Favorite Sixers jersey? The Iverson black jersey. See, I like the Iverson. You see a pattern here? The Iverson blue. My favorite color is black. Yeah, you're... Okay, so the, this leads me right to our last question here. <laughs> do you like the sleeved black Cavaliers jersey like D-Ray and I, I like? I don't like the sleeves. Why? It looks so good. As that jersey looked so good. As a t-shirt, not a basketball jersey. But it looked good. They made it work. They rocked no, it LeBron out. LeBron makes things work. Sure. Because he's LeBron. Sure. Not because the jersey's great. Well, the jersey looked great on LeBron, therefore Listen, it's a great jersey. that hat would look good on LeBron. That bright yellow Pittsburgh. I don't think that jersey. hat would look good on anybody. Listen, LeBron makes a lot of things look good because he's very fashionable. Well, I didn't mind Steph Curry rocking the sleeved J either. I didn't like that either. So you're just out on sleeves. I'm just out on the sleeve jersey. What if it's black? I mean, you said you like black black jerseys, black you, shirts. If you give me that as a t-shirt, I'm good with it. How's a jersey? You're ridiculous. Yeah. I'm ridiculous. Yeah, you. Listen, I'm consistent. That's what I am. I'm not ridiculous. I'm consistent. Are you? Yeah. My favorite color is black. You notice all my picks were? Black. Black. It's pretty consistent. You're not wearing black today. Well, I got to change. I'm actually wearing black shorts. Yeah, but you normally go black tee. Yeah, but you know, you got to put things in the That's washer. That's inconsistent, if you no, ask me. I'm still wearing black shorts. Black socks? Black socks, black sneaks. What about the boxers? That's too much information. Well, I want to know if it's black or not. We'll be back tomorrow. Julian Edlow, Andrew DiCecco, and more on the Sports Bash.